G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to our sixth episode of Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia. Our theme for Series 6, taking the Australian ecosystem from good to great, continues as we take a look at the interplay of infrastructure and innovation. We'll begin in conversation with Tech Sydney CEO Bede Moore, who has a big vision for Sydney's startup community, one that begins with a big bit of infrastructure. Then we sit down with Dr. Mike Berchuk, founder of quantum computing startup Q-Control. Mike's quantum firmware promises to revolutionize quantum computing, making it far more reliable. Big buildings, big ideas, and big plans on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by MYOB. Running a startup is pretty cool, but doing the books isn't. MYOB makes it easier. For your free trial, visit myob.com slash twista. Twista is sponsored by the University of Technology, Sydney, driving the next generation of entrepreneurs. UTS is equipping a new breed of startup founders by engaging, inspiring, and connecting driven students. If you'd like to mentor, invest in, or support our startups, email startups at uts.edu.au. Twista is also sponsored by Creative3. The future is creative. Seize it at Creative3 on the 14th of September in Brisbane. Learn more at creative3.co. The last four years have seen a huge transformation in Australia's startup ecosystem. Nowhere more so than in Sydney, which is home to half of Australia's startups. But that dominance is not going unchallenged. We've seen state governments in Queensland and Victoria step up with huge buckets of cash to splash out on their own startup ecosystems. In a lot of ways, Sydney has been left to develop on its own. So who speaks for Sydney's startups? Today, that voice belongs to Tech Sydney, and we're very happy to have Bede Moore, the CEO of Tech Sydney, with us on This Week in Startups Australia. Welcome, Bede. Thanks very much, Mark. Pleasure to be here. I'm glad to be uh, provided with that mantle. Thank you. <laughs> well, okay, so but then the, the, this is the lead-in. Talk to us about Tech Sydney, and, and are you speaking for Sydney startups? Well, absolutely, I think so. Um, look, we have very clearly set out a mandate for ourselves, which is that we want Sydney to become a top 10 global ecosystem uh, in the next decade. Um, and we think that the, the way we get there is, um, is, is, is our setup, right? It is a founder-led industry group uh, that, that, focus, that collaborates with all aspects of the industry, you know? So it is the high-growth technology companies, critically, the universities, corporates, and, of course, government. And we think that uh, ultimately the success of the ecosystem requires all of those parties to collaborate effectively um, to, to continue building um, uh, the, the, the ecosystem. 
So do you create the place where that happens? I mean, what's Tech Sydney's role then in facilitating you mean the You mean the locus? I mean, we are, as, as you know, and as this conversation is going to get to, like we are, one of the things that we've advocated for is the creation of an, a, a, a location that hosts uh, the, the innovation ecosystem um, of this city. Um, but no, I think we, what we do is we focus on three different areas. One is talent development, uh, the second is community integration, and the third is ecosystem advocacy. Um, and so the first two in terms of ecosystem, sorry, of, of uh, community integration and uh, talent development are very much predicated on this understanding, we're seeing this through um, the work being done by Startup Genome, that ecosystems that um, have more resources and experience create scale-ups scale at a higher rate. Now, it sounds almost like an, a banal observation, but the reality is like w w what they're showing is a, a really strong co uh, correlation across the globe of um, communities that are tightly interwoven mm. um, grow faster and create more successful startups. Right. And so our, our programming is very much designed and targeted at doing that. And you can think of it in some ways that's been happening organically in that there's a network of mentors, right? Yeah. And if someone's mentoring a startup and knows that there's some specific skill that they need, they know which other mentor in the community to be able to turn to mm. who can provide that. Yeah. So are we talking about taking that and amplifying it? Are we talking about taking that and adding to it? Yep. Or Look, I, the first thing I'd say actually in response to that is I, I think there's a lot of um, probably excessive hand-wringing about the state of affairs in, in Sydney. Um, I'm, I'm a little more sanguine. Um, you know, we score immensely well in the startup genomes rankings in terms of community integration. And yes, that is something that as an organisation we want to um, to accelerate. Um, and so we we think about it in, in two different ways. One is peer-to-peer um, -peer development. Mm. And so um, probably the core of that for us is the founder forum programs yep. we run. Uh, you know, monthly meetups between peer group companies, closed group sessions under NDA, um, an opportunity for people to discuss business, you know, health and wellness. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, a large part of that turns into um, an opportunity for founders to really decompress about some of the challenges of, of running their businesses. To um, the only other people who will understand yeah, that yeah, that's, that's right. the thing. That's right. Yes. I'm about to run out. I've got cash flow for six more weeks. What do I do? Yeah. You need to be with people who can say, yeah. hey, you can get out of it and here's, yeah. here's how. Here's or how I need to it. fire someone. How do I do this? Totally. Or, yeah, yeah no, no, right. no. Having been a founder, I know these kinds of things because you can't turn to the organization because in some ways the founder... It's not that you can't reveal weakness, but you have to be very careful about that. That's right. It's a, it's a, you, you, you're walking along a, a cliff edge at all times, um, you know. And, and then, look, the second thing is, as you describe, what I would call more a cross-pollination, which is where you take where what you do is you're recycling experience mm. into the ecosystem, and that's obviously done um, like the kind of uh, that always starts as a, as a mentoring basis. But we we like to try and formalise some of that mentoring. So, you know, one of the programs that we're running uh, this year is called Women in venture and that's taking uh, going to university campuses and teaching young women students about venture capital, how to assess companies, how to how to create an investment case, and that's where you're essentially taking the leaders of the ecosystem to the you know the, the future leaders of the ecosystem right. and, and teaching them knowledge. It's what what we really want to do is, and this is you know I, I, I tried to think of ways to say this, but increase the velocity of experience sharing. 
No, I mean, I think that's exactly the right way to put it. I mean, it's about being able to get people to know where they can turn at any moment in time for the experience they need to right. help them through the right. challenge they're right. facing. All right, so that's the, the community aspect, that's the learning aspect. And then what's that third aspect? So, yeah, the third aspect is uh, ecosystem advocacy, right? And that is um, essentially twofold. It, it means us um, being um, adequately engaged or um, effectively engaged with the community to understand what their needs and desires are. Mm. And it also uh, requires us to have um, an, a casting an analytical eye over what's going on globally. And, and that is in part of the reason why we've, we've engaged with Startup Genome to, to understand, well, what's working effectively elsewhere and, and, and what are the sorts of things that we could learn and, and bring, um, bring to, to Australia. And that, and that might be, um, again, at the community level or, or it can be advocating to, to city and to state government about things that they should consider um, when they're kind of crafting their policy. So let's, that, that's the perfect lead in here because the thing that I have heard, although I haven't actually seen the plans, is that Tech Sydney has a proposal for the redevelopment of Central Station. That's so right. do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, look, I think it's important um, to understand what the, what the derivation of this is, right? Um, our argument is, as an organisation, that there is a huge opportunity to substantially um, underpin Australia's GDP by effectively growing our high growth um, technology companies. You know, if you look at the United States, 21% of um, their GDP is contributed to by um, high growth, venture backed high growth technology companies. The figures for Israel are dramatically higher. Yes. They're like 60 to 70. Yeah, but Israel is also the outlier that everyone points to. I, like, why yeah, can't we do that? Here? I get it. That's, that's totally fair. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't try, but I'm just saying it is an outlier. But, but the numbers say that we're 0.01%, right? Okay. And so, look, we can quibble about, the, about how you get to those numbers, but even if they're directionally correct, they're yeah. deeply disconcerting, yeah. right? So that's the first thing. Um, and then the second, the second kind of part of the situation, I think, that you have to describe is, look, innovation clusters um, typically drive greater productivity, sure. right? Um, and, you know, it's estimated around about 6% productivity increase as a result of having these um, innovation clusters. Um, and, you know, the, the US research of part of what, again, we based our kind of thinking on, um, a guy called Enrico Moretti thinks also that they drive job creation so that if you have a high innovation cluster, each job that's created within the cluster, five external jobs are also, or right. support jobs are also created. So, so that's the that's the analytical framework or the or the or the context for why we are suggesting this, and um, and what we've said is Sydney doesn't. Sydney is a very fragmented community. We're split uh, all over the city, and, and less so at the moment. We come back to the Sydney startup hub, but we are uh, we are a very fragmented community, and that the the reason that um, the reason that that is problematic is because that. Um, Innovation precincts are a place, obviously, where you can drive an increased sense of community, um, deeper local connectedness, and you improve the number of collisions. And these are exactly the factors that Startup Genome has kind of said, hey, that's why you get to, that's how you build faster startups, okay? 
And so taking all of that as the context, we looked around and the obvious place in this city to, to build a, an innovation cluster is at Central. The, the station is, is going to be redeveloped as part of the metro planning. Um, there's a parcel of land that is owned by the, by the state government there that could be redeveloped into an innovation precinct. Um, it's obviously completely interconnected both with regional New South Wales and also in the city because it's the because it's central and, um, and two universities, UTS and, and Sydney. And the two, well, but and without forgetting TAFE New South Wales right. and and RPA, right? right. And, and the light rail going out to UNSW. Exactly right. Exactly right. So 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 there is a so there is a really strong geographic argument for why it would be located at this yep. particular place. Um, and you know, in essence, what we said is, hey, you should be building an innovation precinct because clearly they work. Um, we. And then we've said that the obvious place for that appears to be central. Um, and then the kind of two other things that we've layered over, over the top of that message are, we think that it needs to be industry-led. Mm. So that means that you need to have everybody housed there from pre-revenue startups all the way to the big guys. So basically Google all the way down to some, yeah, little startup. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and those being kind of equal players right. in this and having, and both, both needing to have a voice because both provide different functions to an effective ecosystem. Right. Um, and and that and that potentially one way of getting there is to 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 build this facility through so, a sort of a tech infrastructure fund. Okay. Okay. So that's uh, and this proposal's been made to state government, mm -hmm. sort of formally, and it's is it grinding its way through the various ministries? Uh, yeah. I um. I, you know, I would. Uh, one of the things I'd say is that you know it, it's been a long conversation and something that um, very much has been undertaken. Um, in the background, because we think it's important, but it's a long like this is this is a huge piece of infrastructure yeah. we're talking about, right? Um, and so, part well, it's of, going to house something as big as Google, right? Which you know, has filled up already the entire Fairfax building over yeah. here. So, I mean, you are you're talking about something that if we're talking about a mat. We're, we're talking about a, an, an absolutely massive, building. an absolutely massive. I mean, look, look, we've um, the city startup hub, which you know I think everybody would agree is is. Um, a, a huge success. Yes, a, and where we're recording this right now, and where we are recording it right now, yeah. and um, you know, it, it, one of the um, one of the wonderful things about this facility is, I think that what it has shown anecdotally for everybody in the industry is how much place can matter. Yeah. Um, but there was. I don't think there was any, for the people who were sort of key ecosystem leaders, I think everyone was aware that, oh, God, Marudi's over here and Fishburners is over here and Stone and Chalk is over mm. here and Tankstream is over here. Mm. And everyone felt, I think, a little bit frustrated by that but didn't know what to do because there wasn't a place for everyone to live. Yeah, that's right. Um, look, for, for me, I think the, uh, the, the, the way, you know, you, when, you, when you run a startup, you spend half your time going to meetings because no yeah. one will ever come to you. Yeah. And all of a sudden, uh, in, in the life of a startup, people are willing to come to Sydney Startup Up. You know, I mean, it, it, it demonstrates the gravity of this building, um, just that fact, that fact alone. And as I said, like some of this, the, one of the, one of the um, it's been very, very useful for us as an organisation to have this because people feel it anecdotally. And it ties in, those experiences tie in with some of the research that we've put forward and saying, hey, look, the increasing the number of collisions is a meaningful uh, driver of, you know, startup growth. So Annie Parker, who was running Fishburners and is now running the Microsoft startup, Global Startups Hub, which is up on the 10th floor, 
um, which talks more sort of about how the, the hub has become a centerpiece, went to Paris to see something called Station F. Yeah. You're smiling because yeah. you've been there, haven't you? I haven't. I, you know, I, I'm smiling because I knew you were going to ask me that, and it's kind of seen as the uh, it, it's the great shame that I haven't been there because. Uh, well, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to shame you because I haven't been there either. <laughs> because it sounds like that's kind of what we are. The, the vision to. is absolutely. I mean, look what what an amazing facility, right? Three hundred million dollars, uh, Javier. And Neal, how many thousand square meters? Thirty-four thousand square meters. Um, so it's enormous. <laughs> it's like the size of a Westfield. Yeah, basically. totally. Yeah. yeah, and 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 look, uh, the thing again, um, I, you know, it's relatively new, um, yeah. so it's it's hard to. It's, I, it's but again, it's that same mix of big companies and small companies, it's a, right? It's an amazing mix, and I again, I can, I kind of sort of feel the success of this piece of infrastructure right. simply by the weight of numbers of people who say. But you need to fly to Paris to see this, yeah. you know, and and um, and so again, I think I think what we're going to see, I, I, like, but I, I think maybe what we need to do is fly some ministers <laughs> over there. Hey, free trip! Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I would. Uh, one of the things that um, you can say with without any uh, without any problem is that um, ministers from various Australian state and federal governments have flown to Israel yeah. uh, over the last decade to see what's going on there and yeah. it has never been and never failed to be a source of inf- inspiration and and I agree I think um, you know from from a city and, and state perspective this is a piece of infrastructure which demonstrates the import of building a centralized place where um, innovation can be located now can that happen on that scale like the French national government is involved in that not just the, the this not just the Paris uh, p- provincial government mm. so if we're building something like central are we talking about having every level of government involved or is that just going to be state government and local government and federal government wouldn't need to be involved in yeah that? look w- w- one of the one of the mechanisms there, there are, you know I mean there's a, there's a lot of different ways to cut a piece of cake right but the the, the, the um, one of the mechanisms that you could use is uh, is is a form of you know technology infrastructure fund where mm. you essentially say okay we're gonna we we're, we're going to create a fund that is going to purchase this piece of land uh, and the purchase and the and that a fund is going to be established with some lead investment from you know state and and federal governments but we are also going to seed it with a lot of private investment because. Um, it's you know it's central, right? I mean, it is a piece of valuable land, and when developed, there there is going to be a huge um, value uplift that can accrue, therefore, to anybody who is an investor in the in the infrastructure fund. Typically, um, you know, developments here are often done where a developer will buy the land first, and then they will they will take the the value accrual that occurs as a result of their doing the development. An alternative way of doing that might be through a tech infrastructure fund. All right. So if we're out, let's go out five years, all right? If we get the infrastructure built, Mm. do we have the policy behind that so that if there are changes in government or changes in priorities, that the infrastructure is still being delivered and is still becoming what it needs to be for the startup hub. Because this is not something that happens overnight. Mm. It's not like the Sydney startup hub was basically repurposing an existing building. Even Mm. that took some time, but it's gonna be relatively fast compared to building a huge new site. Um, so I think the construction of something like this, once once it had been decided, would take around about five years. That's that's what I understand it to be. Let's say it's five to seven. Um, I think one of the 
good pieces of fortune that arises from the Sydney Startup Hub is the fact that here we have this um, this you know petri dish to kind of understand well how do we how do we run one of these how do we curate and run one of these facilities effectively, and that that those lessons can then inform um, our our ongoing policy. If what you're so, asking, so me this that, is our product market fit. Yeah, this yeah, is where we're yeah, getting our product that, market that's fit. That's right. This is our MVP. Right. So, <laughs> exactly. Um, I think. Um, I, I think that uh, obviously, look, we're, we're not yet at the point of agreeing um, about building a piece of infrastructure at Central. And obviously, I th- what we would need to see for that to be effective is it's not just about the infrastructure. Right? Infrastructure is not a policy in this case. What we need is a piece of infrastructure that is then surrounded by effective programming and curation um, and that that in turn is led by um, a, you know, a, a strategy in government that is about how we're going to build our innovation precinct and, and innovation within the state more broadly. Um, and you're right, all of those all of those pieces need to come together, um, you know, and, and and we're not there yet. But I I think one of the positive signs that I've taken in the short period of time that I've been in this job and, and just kind of looking back and talking to ministers and their advisors and, and whatnot is that the importance of this, uh, and by which I mean not only the infrastructure but also the industry, is really starting to make itself felt um, in the higher echelons of government in New South Wales. And so I'm really optimistic that we can get there within the timeframes that we're talking about. Deedmore, thank you very much for joining us in This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks, Mark. MYOB saves businesses time, helps improve cash flow, gets invoices paid faster, gives real-time visibility of profit and loss, and makes payroll easy. With MYOB, you can create, send, and track customized invoices. This is awesome because Australian businesses can wait on average 43 days to get paid. With MYOB, your clients can pay you directly from your invoices. People who use the MYOB online invoicing solution get paid four times faster. MYOB software will let you know when you've been paid, then update the accounts. You don't have to lift a finger. MYOB's online solutions make pay runs quick and easy, ensuring all of your tax and super payments are compliant with the Australian Tax Office. You can save half a day every month on processing employee pay. MYOB's mobile app means you can create a quote on the job, send invoices straight from the app, and even get paid on the same day you invoice. 1.2 million businesses in Australia and New Zealand use MYOB. Startups, sole traders, and small businesses, all the way up to companies with hundreds of staff. Whatever your stage or size, MYOB has a solution for you. Twista listeners will get a free 30-day trial, and the first 50 people to sign up will also get $100 in cash. Go to myob.com slash twista for your free trial today. Quantum computing is probably going to be the biggest revolution in computing in our lifetime. 
They've been at it for a long time. It's a hard problem. A lot of people have been working on it. And of course, one of the biggest problems with quantum computing isn't that it's possible to create a quantum computer. It's that it's impossible to create a quantum computer that lasts for any length of time. The time that quantum computers actually work successfully can be measured generally in milliseconds or less. But there may be a solution to that. And we're talking to the founder of a startup that may have that solution, Dr. Mike Birchuk. Nice to meet you. Thanks for being here and having me. And, and so you are the founder and the CEO of a, a startup called Q-Control. What is Q-Control and what are you doing in quantum computing? Uh, I mean, it, it's true. I am the founder of this uh, really exciting technology startup. I'm also a professor of quantum physics and quantum technology, so I'm not a random guy coming out of the woods. Um, One would hope not. Uh, well, there's plenty. Uh, our focus uh, historically has been on understanding how we can put quantum systems to work in a way that uh, recognizes this real fundamental challenge that you touched on, which is that quantum things tend to break very easily. Right. The quantumness gets erased. And if you're trying to build technology that harnesses this, this interesting physics we find on very small scales, if it breaks, then there's no technology to be built. So our focus academically has been on understanding this problem. And over, over quite a long time, I've been in the field since uh, 2001, um, when, I was, when I was starting my PhD, uh, We've now reached a point where uh, we believe there's commercial viability to build a company that focuses on deploying the insights we have to fix the number one problem in quantum computing, which is hardware error. That's what we focus on. Hardware error. So the fact that you can make a calculation, but by the time you get a result from that calculation, you can't reliably trust that result? It's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. If you, if you think about conventional computers, the likelihood that any of the individual hardware switches, the transistors that make your microprocessor work will fail is exceptionally low. Right. That whole microprocessor running at a gigahertz with a billion transistors, it can run for something like a decade right. before any single element fails. Right, and often that's because it got hit by a cosmic ray or exactly. some radiation. Exactly. Now, whatever, or... the, whatever the source is, you know, if your experience may involve the blue screen of death a lot, but that's software, that's not a hardware fa failure. By contrast with quantum computers, right. With most of the technology that's popular now, the systems employed by Google and IBM and others, the, the individual hardware elements tend to break after something like one one-thousandth of a second, a millisecond, or in, in general, it's actually less than that. That's a really big challenge, because if you now think that... You know, if you can't run a computer for more than a thousandth of a second at a time, you're not going to get right. a lot done. And no matter how you parse it, it's really bad. If you talk about how long the computer lives in this respect, or you talk about something more akin to this likelihood of hardware error, the probability of error, let's say it's one in a thousand, which is, which is pretty common in our community for the best systems. One in a thousand chance of error, and every time you flip a switch, flip right. a quantum bit in this case. Well, if you have a thousand qubits, and a one in a thousand qubits like, being quantum you know, the, the bits, quantum bits the, right. the fundamental information carriers we use, and uh, you, know, you have a thousand of them, one in a thousand chance of each one fails. After one click of the clock, after one clock cycle, you are likely to have suffered an algorithmic failure. That, is, that looks like a fundamentally insurmountable problem unless you take action. And what Q-Control does is it takes action in order to reduce this likelihood of error. Okay, so based from your research, you were able to go, wait, it looks like there are ways we can reduce these errors to make quantum computers more accurate. Now, to come back to sort of the startup angle on this podcast, how do you as a researcher, and we talked a little bit 
to Mike Nichols about this. How do you as a researcher know or trust your research enough to go, there's a company here, there's a business here? Well, the first thing that I think is a little bit unusual about our uh, particular perspective is that in addition to having these interesting ideas, we've also had a world-class quantum physics laboratory as, as my playground, right? right, as my team's playground. And, and I should say that we're recording this at the Sydney Nanoscience Hub at the University of Sydney, which is this world-class quantum computing playground. That's right. And so I run a research lab in my academic life that uh, has for many years done basic tests of all the ideas we've had. So, so we have this, this unique confluence where we have interesting ideas mm -hmm. and we have world-class facilities in which to validate them, yeah. telling us that now they are kind of market ready in the sense that they're technically viable. Yeah. In addition to that, what we see is, uh, you know, there is a change in our community away from purely academic science towards industrial engagement. We've seen this with the big investments coming from IBM and Google and Microsoft and also startups like INQ and Rigetti in hardware. With that development of an industry around mm -hmm. quantum computing, it became obvious that our laboratory validated insights and our understanding of how important this problem of error is lead us to a market opportunity. And okay, the market so, opportunity is to serve all of them. All right, so you really do have this moment, and this moment has, has been sort of over the last 24 months that a lot of money has come in from a lot of, you know, again, you see Microsoft, Google, IBM being the three biggest players in this space because they all want to be in front of whatever this does to computing. Mm. So you now have validation from that. What is Cute Control doing specifically that fits within that larger ecosystem of players? Cute Control is a is a business to business uh, organization where we focus on building solutions to improve the performance of other organizations' hardware. So IBM has a quantum computer. It has kind of okay performance, just right. like all the other ones. It's, right. I'm not singling them out. Uh, we provide solutions to organizations like IBM to allow them to get more performance out of their hardware without making hardware changes. So this, we, we call this quantum firmware. It operates at the absolute bottom of the, of the so-called software stack for quantum computing. Uh, and really what it does is it just takes their hardware and makes it look like it's better for the people who want to run algorithms. Right? So, so you don't have to change the hardware, you're changing the, the, the firmware, the, the lowest right. level software. That's right, and it's, it's a lot like, it, th there's actually a great classical analog, and that classical analog is DRAM. You yeah. mean, whenever we say computer memory, we typically mean DRAM. Right. DRAM is a kind of storage that is actually not stable. Right. Uh, very rapidly, the memory that you've put in, the ones and the zeros, get randomized. Yeah. And so there's a firmware protocol called DRAM refresh that involves rewriting all the cells in, in a, on a schedule in such a way that to any user, it looks like the memory is stable. Yeah. Well, that, because the, the energy in each cell is leaking out slowly. That's and you exactly have to go right. back and recharge the cell before it leaks that's, out. That's exactly right. To the end user, it's pretty much invisible. Yes. All they see is that the memory looks stable. Yes. We have a very similar role in quantum computing. We provide firmware solutions to quantum computers that stabilize against errors, that reduce the likelihood of error, such that the ultimate algorithmic users, they don't have any knowledge required of what's going on at, at that basic level where we're acting. We just make quantum computers perform better. Now, 
Correct me if I'm wrong here, but my feeling is right now there's no such thing as a standard model quantum computer, right? IBM might have built one, MIT might have built one, Sydney might have built one, and they're all different. So does that mean that you're working, at, that every business that you're doing business with is going to have its own set of considerations so that you're not producing one product, but you're developing something that's custom to each customer? Uh, no. Uh, the, the really brilliant part of the underlying science, the physics that powers the firmware we build, we call it quantum firmware, obviously, is that it's totally agnostic of what the technology is. Whether you're Google or IBM using these so-called superconducting circuits, or your ion queue using trapped ions, or your uh, anyone else, if you have a quantum bit as your information carrier, then our solutions work for your quantum bit. So you just feed it the quantum bit and the rest is... How, however it's, uh, it's actually implemented is almost immaterial. Now, we can always do more. We can customize for the needs of a particular customer, mm -hmm. a hardware manufacturer who has a very specific problem in their implementation. Mm -hmm. But all of it is based on the same underlying framework, the same quantum firmware framework, which is extremely powerful. You can think of it a little bit uh, in the way that uh, Android, as an operating system for, for mobile devices, can be you know, the same underlying software code, which then has different skins on top for Samsung or whoever uh, wants to use that, uh, that background. So we have a computational engine that powers our quantum firmware. And then we indeed will build very specific uh, implementation skins, if you will, for customers that are coming to us with their very, very specific tailored needs. But ultimately, everything is the same at the physics level. Now, you've had market validation. You actually have customers right now, right? Uh, we have uh, a couple of partnerships. Uh, we have uh, our first customer has, uh, has signed up, first paying customer, which is very exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, you know, the I's and, and T's need to be dotted and crossed, as it were. But uh, we, we do have uptake where, you know, one of the earliest exciting validations from the market was when IBM invited us to join the, the Q network of startups. So a way to think about this is the, the trusted startups, if you will, right. who, are, who are really delivering for the community. And we're very proud to join uh, seven other startups who are all led by, by world-leading research teams in this area. Okay, so you've got... You know, the ink's not dry, but you've got that first client. What is the business model here? Is this a licensing model? Is it, I mean, if you're, if you're selling effectively software, how do you make money from your clients? You, you don't have a lot of clients right now, and there's go, it's going to be some period of time before there are a lot of clients. So I think there's a couple of important aspects to this. The first is, uh, you know, we are what we sell effectively is is knowledge mm. packaged as software. Mm -hmm. Right, software is a means to an end. So right. I want to be clear that we're not we're not like the companies that are trying to run algorithms on quantum computer, run software on quantum computing hardware. Um, we do something different that we of course package as software. Now. Part of our model is based on uh, the fact that our first product called Black Opal mm -hmm. is a SaaS cloud-based platform where people will pay to have access to this extraordinarily powerful computational engine with a brilliant front end that's put on top of it. Another part of the revenue model is by building customized implementations that automate and integrate this quantum firmware into the software stacks of the big manufacturers. Right um, Now, of course, the quantum computing landscape is rapidly developing, but still reasonably niche. Yes. Um, we are hopeful that that will expand exponentially and our, our base of potential revenue sources will grow with it. However, 
we are cognizant of the timeframes to that. And an important realization in our company is that uh, uh, many of the firmware solutions we develop for quantum computing actually apply to a whole range of other things, like medical imaging, mm -hmm. like industrial analytic chemistry, uh, and also defense and aerospace, so quantum sensing. As I was going to say, anything where you're doing a quantum measurement, not just a quantum computer measurement. That, that's right. And so you know, there are many, many documents that exist around the world from academics and governments looking at, well, on the, on the long arc towards building quantum computers, what are the intermediate milestones that we think will come around? And one of them is the idea of using the same qubit technology, a mm -hmm. quantum information carrier, as a sensor of its environment, taking this idea that qubits are very, very delicate, they're very fragile. And this is both and the problem that. and That's the feature. Right. That's exactly right. And so uh, you know, there, there's a huge amount of interest in quantum sensing. Our control solutions actually can make quantum sensors perform better as well in, mm -hmm. in a variety of different ways. So we have uh, different marketplaces. Our, our first focus as we launch Black Opal, the first product we're selling is quantum computing, largely based on my expertise, my network, uh, and, right. and, our, and our background, the shared expertise of the team. Right. But you foresee this as, as a, something that will grow into a range of solutions for a range of, of quantum devices. Q-Control uh, has the objective of being the trusted provider of control solutions across all quantum technologies, not just quantum computing. Okay, so you have investment from main sequence, and we talked to Mike Nichols about that, but you just got a big tranche of investment from Sequoia, which is effectively the gold standard, the modern gold standard in venture capital in the United States. So they must have seen what you're doing and believe in it is part of that because you've given them a SaaS model. And frankly, a venture capitalist knows how to understand a SaaS model where they might get a little lost in the woods when you're talking about quantum computing. I think, so So first I should say, Main Sequence was our earliest investor. Uh, and in the, in the first part of our seed round in November 2017, uh, we also had Horizons Ventures, which is the investment vehicle of Mr. Li Ka-shing in, in Hong Kong. Uh, the round we've just closed is the completion of our seed, which was actually led by Data Collective uh, in, in the United States, in okay. Silicon Valley, which was one of the earliest investors in Rigetti and D-Wave and has been active uh, in this space, as well as uh, Sequoia China, which right. you mentioned a moment ago. So I think I believe that the story of uh, addressing the number one problem in the field of quantum technology and quantum computing with a laboratory-validated solution is uh, is a compelling story. I believe that that was adopted by uh, or, or or bought by organizations like DCVC and Sequoia. Uh, in terms of SaaS, I'm actually not convinced that SaaS is what sells them because we're not looking at this what triple triple double 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 revenue model, which works if you're a consumer facing. You know, you just. B2B selling things to Oracle or whoever, uh, that, that's not that's not our revenue hand, Your model. sales cost is also going to be a lot lower because you've got fewer customers. Well, I, I, would, put it, so. I, yeah, I would put it this way, that um, it is attractive that we have low capital intensiveness, intensity, I guess, uh, because we are not building hardware for the company. Mm -hmm. We are working with other customers to make their hardware better. So it's it's... By comparison, it's relatively low cost to make the software to invest in the research on algorithm development, on control engineering, and the like. 
That I think is attractive. The fact that the service delivery model of the first product, Black Opal, is SaaS-based, I think that's more a reflection of the fact that we have a modern view on how to deliver solutions mm -hmm. to customers that leverages the power of, of cloud-based computing, of distributed computing, of cloud-based storage and access, instead of just making a little you know, MATLAB code package or Python code package and asking people to download and put it on their system. You know, we, we will add features every week to on a rolling basis to this extraordinarily powerful package, and that's something you can't do in the older software model. So I think what I would say in this case is the SaaS uh, adoption for us, it, it indicates that, uh, I hope that it indicates we're a little more savvy than many other kind of academic turned, uh, uh, turned commercial individuals. We have a team that is approximately 50% quantum control engineering and 50% product development. That's a really interesting and unique make, uh, makeup that I think sets us apart. All right, last question. You are wearing two very different hats, right? You wear the CEO hat at Q-Control, but you also wear this, you know, you're running a lab here. And so how do you manage, I guess, both of those sides? Because they're quite do they ask quite different things of you, or are they the same skills deployed differently? I think, uh, in general, they look very different, and part of my evolution as a professional has been trying to understand how the skill set that I personally have can be leveraged in these different ways. Um, I believe that in science, a key part of uh, what makes scientists successful is an ability to communicate, and that means to communicate with peers as well as lay audiences. Right. Uh, and at the same time, communicate with, say, funding agents. I was going to say bodies, funding bodies, absolutely. Um, who have very different things that they want to hear and understand. Um, the same is true in commercial ventures. You have to be able to communicate to your staff, to your customers, to potential investors, uh, to the market as a whole. I think, I think the communications aspect is the same. What really differs is what the objective is. Um, yeah. On the academic side, our objective is to get to the truth. Right? To, to understand at the truest, most fundamental level how nature works. And uh, in, uh, in the company, we are after opportunity. Right Now, I don't mean that it's opportunity at the expense of truth. I just mean if we see an opportunity to build something that is useful for our customers, we will pursue that, uh, pursue that as opposed to just asking, is this the ultimate best thing you could do? Is this the fundamental ground truth of how one should operate a quantum bit? It's, it's a different approach to the market, if you will, where the market is, is the different bodies or, or individuals with whom you're interacting. Um, but I, I think you know, I've been served well by having been a program agent in the United States. I worked at an organization called DARPA as a consultant. I've been a management consultant at Buzell and Hamilton. Um, that, that diversity of backgrounds, I think, has been helpful. Um, but ultimately, um, it's a great benefit that we have this amazing laboratory right here with all of the technical people who make you know, these experiments work, able to interact over lunch with the software engineers and the quantum control engineers who are building products for our customers. Mike, thank you very much for joining us in This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks very much for having me. Entrepreneurship. It's the heart of the student experience at the University of Technology, Sydney. 
with almost half of UTS students wanting to create their own jobs or start their own companies. Equipping students with the tools to become entrepreneurs has become critical to their success. Sydney's leadership and strength as Australia's largest startup ecosystem requires a steady, well-supported pipeline of entrepreneurial talent. Working at the heart of this ecosystem, UTS plays a critical role, inspiring and connecting thousands of talented students into that pipeline. UTS is committed to ensuring a thriving and growing base for the startup sector, investing heavily in this future today for Australia's tomorrow. Get in touch. Email startups at uts.edu.au to find out more. We recently launched a new segment for Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia, asking all of the many incubator and accelerator programs running across the country to spruik their programs to twist the listeners in their own words. This week we'll hear from Ben Hutt, Chief Program Director of Slingshot, about their Horizons Accelerator. Take it away, Ben. Good afternoon. My name is Ben Hutt. I'm Chief Program Director and Entrepreneur-in-Resident for Slingshot Accelerator. And I have the great privilege of running all of our accelerator programs around Australia um, and elsewhere in the universe. So we are running the Horizons Accelerator program in Queensland for the second year this year. Um, recruitment's just opened, applications close on the 17th of August. And it's really a program sponsored by the Queensland government with a specific purpose of discovering new, innovative, early-stage startup businesses in Queensland. Um, that can support or help grow the very important tourism industry in Queensland. So we run the program over 12 weeks um, from early September through to Christmas, effectively. There are three intense chapters really around proving out a business model, um, growth and traction, and then investor readiness. And we're running the program simultaneously in Cairns and Brisbane. It's going to be a great program. We had some really exciting participants last year, including um, a not-for-profit, which was Reef Restoration, which ended up receiving some very serious grants from um, some serious investors. It's a good program with some good alumni behind it. Applicants that are chosen are eligible for investment funding from the Slingshot Venture Fund, which will be $30,000 to get your idea off the ground. They'll also be eligible for up to half a million dollars of what we call partner perks, which is basically kind of discounts, free hosting, free software, free services from um, Slingshot partners, all of whom are listed on the Horizons website, which is horizons.slingshotters.com. And intake is coming soon. So please go to the website, get your applications in. Um, We're having a pitch day in Brisbane on the 6th of September and one in Cairns on the 7th of September. Any idea is a good idea, and we look forward to really working closely with Queensland and with the Queensland startup ecosystem. Creative 3 is back for 2018, and once again, I'll be your MC. This year, Creative 3 looks a little bit different. September the 14th will be the night of nights for creatives, a three-course dinner celebrating the trailblazers, disruptors, thought leaders, and futurists. 
Creative 3 is designed for and by creative enterprise professionals to address some of the key challenges facing the industry, offering the rare opportunity to contribute to these important issues with some of the best creative minds on the planet. The future is creative. Seize it. Save your spot at the table at creative3.co. We might get a fantastic new startup hub for Sydney, or we might not. Political winds change. What's sexy today might not be so interesting tomorrow. Infrastructure requires a steady hand, one that can't be swayed by unfavorable winds. The University of Sydney had that long view and made the big investment needed to create their new nanoscience center. In so doing, they thrust themselves to the forefront of quantum computing, one of the hottest research areas in the world. That infrastructure allowed the quantum control laboratory to flourish, and that led to Q-control. You can't always predict all of the ways infrastructure will return its investment. You can only ask for policies that acknowledge infrastructure creates the conditions for those unexpected successes. Big thanks to Twista sponsors MYOB, UTS, and Creative3. Their support makes our podcast possible. Thanks to Bede Moore, Mike Beersook, and Ben Hutt for joining us on this episode. We've recently rebuilt and relaunched our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, all the links, and all the stories. So check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back next week celebrating five years of This Week in Startups Australia with a very special episode that reflects on how far we've come and gazes into the future. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.